0: Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. The Story of Tetris Max, published at bigmessowires.com by Steve Chamberlain, December 2015. It was the summer of 1992. Nirvana smelled like teen spirit. Ross Perot was running for president. And I was a senior at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who wanted to play Tetris. The options then available for my Macintosh LC were uninspiring. Meanwhile, my friends were addicted to a beautifully crafted falling blocks game called Jewelbox, and I wondered if I could make a Macintosh version of Tetris with the same level of polish. And so began the story of Tetris Max a game that was to play a major role in my life for the next decade. I had only a shaky understanding of the C language and a weak grasp of Macintosh programming fundamentals. This was before the days when any programming question could be answered in seconds at Stack Overflow, so knowledge had to be gained the hard way, reading through the five thick printed volumes of Inside Macintosh. Somehow, I cobbled together a working game. Before long, I had dozens of friends camped out in my dorm room day and night, competing for high scores and offering feedback on dropping speed, rotation rules, key repeat behavior, and other fine points that made the difference between a so-so game and a great one. MFR interruption. The official Spectrum Holobyte Tetris for the Macintosh didn't have a soft drop. You just had to sit there and wait. Uh. We polished the hell out of that thing, arguing over arcane details until the gameplay was dialed in perfectly. Then I agonized over all the little graphics elements and sound effects. For events like dropping a piece, advancing to the next level, or getting a high score. Somehow, a mooing cow found its way in there, too. I became obsessed with perfecting every aspect of the game until it was buttery smooth. For music, I chose the instrumental portion of Jesus Jones' song, Blissed. It had that ethereal quality, appropriate for trance-like extended play at level 10. Over lunch one day, a few friends and I argued over what meaningless suffix would be best for the game title. Tetris Gold? Tetris Pro? Tetris Plus? How about Tetris Max? Yes, that's it! At the time, there were dozens of Tetris versions available, including the popular X-Tetris and Asshole Tetris, which cheated against the player. I was aware that the game concept originated with a Russian fellow, but it seemed as though it was a generic idea, like chess or tennis, and it didn't occur to me that I shouldn't call my game Tetris. This came back to haunt me later. Launch In August 1992, I uploaded the first version of Tetris Max to the InfoMac Archive and America Online. Welcome, you've got mail. Which was about as advanced as Macintosh software distribution got at the time. I prayed that somebody would notice my submission. And surprise, somebody did. A lot of somebodies. I started receiving an extraordinary number of emails from all over the world, from people telling me how much they enjoyed playing Tetris Max. It was beyond the best I had hoped for. The game was a hit. Everyone wanted to know about their high score. How did it compare to others? What was the highest score ever achieved? People shared their stories of deep states of meditation achieved on level 10, the final level where human reflexes were just barely fast enough to keep up, where marathon-length Tetris sessions were possible, but where a single mistake was fatal. Others claimed the game helped them get to sleep each night, or reduce their stress levels like a form of therapy. As for myself, I played the game so much that I began to see falling shapes in my mind whenever I closed my eyes and would mentally rotate and drop them without any conscious thought. By that winter, Tetris Max had become a major force in the world of Macintosh games, and the excitement level continued to grow. I was invited to appear in a book about Macintosh shareware called Mac Arcade, Don Rittner's Top Shareware Game Picks. The book included several pages about Tetris Max, including a rather silly biography of me. When I later saw it on sale at a local bookstore, it was one of the most exciting things to yet happen in my young life, and it helped ratchet up the level of Tetris Max mania even further. After the game had been out for a few months, I was contacted by Peter Wagner, an amateur musician and Tetris fan from New Jersey. He loved Tetris Max and offered to compose some original music for it. The song he sent me was perfect for Tetris, beautiful, memorable, and almost meditative, without becoming annoying when it was looped a thousand times over. When I released an update to Tetris Max, I substituted Peter's music, and it became the iconic Tetris Max music that anyone who's ever played the game probably still remembers today. A funny bit of trivia. Peter sent me his song on a cassette tape, which I digitized using a tape deck whose motor was a little too slow, so the music in the game is transposed down about a whole step from Peter's original composition. Our interruption, some of you may also remember the default music from later versions by Jonathan Slatter titled Animal Instinct. Through 1993, the Tetris Max train continued gathering steam. The October 1993 issue of Mac User Magazine, feature article The Then-New Apple Newton, gave it an honorable mention in their annual shareware awards. My name was in print again, and unlike the Mac Arcade book, it was spelled correctly. Exciting times for a young Macintosh fan. MAKING IT PAY By mid-1993, I had graduated from MIT and was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This whole time, Tetris Max had been a free game, and the only thing I asked people for was a note saying hello. Most other Macintosh games at the time were distributed as shareware a try-before-you-buy system in which people were asked to send money to the author if they liked the program. With the popularity of Tetris Max, I heard loud arguments from my friends that I was an idiot for not using the shareware model myself, so I decided to give it a try. In September 1993, I released a new version of the game as a $10 shareware product. The response was weak at first, Players were under the honor system to send in their shareware fees, but there was nothing to really motivate them, except perhaps a guilty conscience. Later, I implemented a NAG screen and an AI player feature that was unlocked only for registered customers, both of which helped boost the number of registrations somewhat, but the total remained low. What really made a difference was the introduction of the bonus disk set in 1994. I saw that most people needed some incentive to register shareware, and I gave them one in the form of a collection of alternate Tetris piece graphics, sounds, and music to use with the game. Since only registered users were eligible to purchase the bonus disk set, it spurred lots of new registrations. In those days, there was no PayPal or other easy way to send small amounts of money to a stranger, so the registration system was incredibly low-tech. I rented a P.O. box at the Cambridge Post Office in Central Square, a few blocks from where I lived. Customers wrote paper checks and mailed them to my P.O. box. I used a cheesy XOR algorithm to generate a registration code from their name, then mailed them back a letter with the code. It was tremendously labor-intensive, and I spent hours manually typing people's names into a database and stuffing envelopes. But low-tech or not, the system worked, and for a while, I earned a very nice side income from shareware registration fees. Steve Wozniak even registered the game on behalf of his children's charity. His check was just signed Woz. Receiving payments from people outside the United States was a big problem. My bank would generally not accept checks drawn on non-U.S. banks, or if they did, The service fee was greater than the amount of the check. Other solutions, like international money orders, didn't work well either. Eventually, I settled on a simple solution cash. Plain old pound notes, francs, deutschmarks, and reales, plucked from a wallet and stuffed in an envelope. I could convert these to U.S. cash for a small fee at any bank or money changer. But in practice, I kept many of them as souvenirs. Sending cash through the mail sounds like it might be a risky idea due to possible theft, but I never had even a single cash registration go missing. Over time, several alternate versions of Tetris Max were developed. In 1994, my friend Yev ported the game to Windows 3.1 and released it as Bricklayer. We split the shareware income between us, but it was never very much as Bricklayer for Windows never enjoyed anywhere near the popularity of Tetris Max for Macintosh. I also reused much of the same code to develop Columns Max in 1995 and Dr. Max in 1997. Neither game was very successful, and to be honest, Columns Max was pretty bad, but I'm proud of Dr. Max. It has a great feel and cute little animations and is lots of fun to play. The most important alternate version appeared in the Mac Arcade Pack, published by MacSoft. Beginning in 1994, the game appeared, as Bricklayer, in this collection of five Macintosh games sold across the country at stores like CompUSA and Microcenter. It was low-budget software, and I only earned a 25-cent royalty for each one, but MacSoft sold a tremendous number of the Arcade Pack. My relationship with MacSoft's partner, Varcon Systems, grew in importance as the Mac Arcade Pack took off. Once, when I was buying a new monitor at CompUSA, the woman ahead of me in the checkout line was buying the Mac Arcade Pack. But when I casually mentioned that I'd written one of the games, she didn't seem too impressed. By 1996, things were going well and my Cambridge P.O. Box was stuffed with envelopes whenever I visited. But I had a problem. I was moving to California. I could have released a new version with a new address for registrations, but so many copies of the old version remained in circulation that the Cambridge P.O. Box was sure to keep receiving letters for a long time to come. My solution was to hire my grad student friend Tom to check the Cambridge P.O. Box for me and forward the letters to my new address in California. Problem solved. For a while, at least. Even as the Macintosh platform lost market share, the popularity of the game remained undiminished. I continued to get emails and letters from enthusiastic players around the world, and everyone still wanted to know about their high score. I finally got fed up with manual registration processing in 1997. Opening envelopes, Database entry, post office runs, bounce checks, it was all too much. So I contracted with Kagi Shareware, RIP, to process the registrations for me. Letters went directly to Kagi, who handled all the money, registration codes, and customer correspondence. They took a big chunk of the income in exchange for their service, but it was worth it for all the headache that it saved me. The End of Things. In 1998, I received a letter from New York law firm LeBeuf Lamb, Green, and McRae LLP on behalf of the Tetris Company, an organization with the sole purpose of licensing the Tetris brand. The letter claimed that both Tetris Max and Columns Max infringed on the trademark, copyright, and other rights of the Tetris Company and demanded that I immediately stop all distribution and sales of the games. Though I didn't know it at the time, this was part of a broad effort by the Tetris company in the late 1990s to remove all freeware and shareware versions of Tetris from the market. Some aspects of these claims seemed dubious to me, as it's subjective to what extent the look and feel of a software program is protected by copyright. And Columns Max was not a Tetris game at all. But the Tetris trademark infringement was more clear, and it seemed I was straight-up wrong in using that as part of the game's name. After briefly consulting with a lawyer, who wasn't much help, I decided I didn't have the resources or the desire to fight. I removed Tetris Max from the internet wherever I could, instructed Kagi to stop accepting shareware registrations, and formally terminated my contract with Varcon. But stopping Tetris Max proved easier said than done. Because there were so many copies of the game still in circulation, registrations continued to arrive at kagi and at my old P.O. box. I had to send letters back to all those would-be registrants returning their checks. kagi complained that they were spending hours doing the same thing for registrations that reached them, yet not getting paid for their efforts. But there was nothing I could do about it. It took about two years for the tide of incoming registrations to finally taper off. As an interesting postscript, in 2000, I became involved in another legal dispute over Tetris Max, after the game had already been discontinued for more than 18 months. Varcon received a summons to Massachusetts Civil Court for a suit related to Tetris Max and the Mac Arcade Pack. It was part of a complex dispute involving derivatives of Tetris, Missile Command, Pac-Man, Dig Dug, and Asteroids. In all, there were four or five companies suing, including Elorg and Hasbro, and ten different companies being sued. There was no question of trademark infringement this time, and the entire case rested on claims of look-and-feel copyright violations. Two months later, I saw a press release saying that Varkon had settled their part of the case, although it mentioned Pac-Man and not Tetris. I never heard anything further about the case. Some people may read this story and conclude, I'm a bad person for unfairly using somebody else's idea, and to a large extent, I would agree. In hindsight, it would certainly have been better if I'd developed a new game concept instead of recycling an existing one. Like many projects gone awry, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It's now 2015, and the Macintosh operating system looks radically different than it did in the 90s. Tetris Max can't even run on today's Macs outside of an emulator for vintage software. Yet, two decades later, I still get occasional emails from fans, and they still want to know about their high scores. Some things never change. Epilogue Having studied digital electronics at MIT, Steve Chamberlain got back into electronics engineering in the 2010s and is the creator and distributor of the Mac Rominator Programmable ROM SIM and the Floppy Emu Floppy and Hard Disk Drive Emulator for the Apple II, Macintosh, and Lisa. You can check those out at bigmessowires.com. He's got a lot of interesting stuff there, his homebrew CPU, his Macintosh Plus FPGA emulator project, and a bit of tinkering with solar power and general electronics hackery. He was also head of engineering for the Ouya Android game console. Steve was interviewed, mostly about Floppy Emu, on the Retro MacCast on episodes 317, 351, and 358. Links are in the show notes you can hear Steve tell about five minutes worth of the Tetris Max story in his own words. I had this army of like 50 friends who were my play testers and they were just in my room day and night like testing this thing. We were fine-tuning the exact dropping speed and rotating speed and all this stuff. Two different companies sent me some kind of legal threatening something about how I was violating their IP. They were going to sue my pants off. For my fellow history buffs, if you haven't seen the BBC documentary on Tetris, you should. Author Biography from Mac Arcade Don Rittner's Top Shareware Game Picks, circa 1992. Steve Chamberlain is in his senior year at MIT, working toward a bachelor's degree in computer science and engineering. His specific interest is in digital systems engineering, which basically means designing and building circuits chips, and entire digital systems. He grew up in Rochester, New York. He started computing when he was 13 when he got an Atari 800 and a 300 BPS modem, which he used to call all the local bulletin boards. He wrote, quote, zillions of programs, mostly in BASIC, for that machine. After spending some time with PC and Amiga systems, he got a Macintosh SE and loved it. He learned C on his own during his freshman year at MIT and started to write simple programs with the help of Inside Macintosh and the Think C sample programs. He moved up from the SE to an LC last summer and also invested in new volumes of Inside Macintosh and Mark and Reed's Macintosh C Programming Primer, Volumes 1 and 2. Steve wrote Tetris Max in ThinkC 5.0 on an LC in the summer of 1992. But the only version he ever saw for the Mac, the Spectrum Holobyte version, was black and white and wasn't free, so he decided to write his own version. His friends told him they loved it, so he uploaded it to an internet site and later to AOL. Steve has gotten email and letters from people all over the U.S. and Europe thanking him for the game and telling him how much they enjoyed it. Steve says he's surprised at the reaction. He never thought it was all that special. Tetris Max is the only big Macintosh program Steve has ever written and the only program he has ever made public. He doesn't consider himself a Macintosh programming guru and says he still doesn't understand half the toolbox routines. Furthermore, he's sure he'd get a failing grade if he turned in the source code for any of his software classes. But it works, and people like it, so he's happy. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories at www.macfolkloreradio.com, and if you like having random Macintosh history tidbits thrown at you, you can join our extremely quiet Discord server at www.macfolkloreradio.com chat. I really appreciate your reviews on iTunes.